0: Well, who knows the song "This Little Light of Mine"? I'm going to let it shine. Oh, you guys even know the actions? Look at that! That's right. You put your fi- Yeah, no, I'm just joking. You put yeah, That's right. You put your finger out and you go, um, "Let let it shine, let it shine, let it shine." Right? We're going to sing it later. Spoiler alert, just so you know. Um, now, let me ask a question. How do we let our light shine? Do you think? Yep. Tell the truth, yeah. But what what do we tell them about, do you think? Yeah. Yes, we tell them what's in the word of God, right? And who's in the word of God? Jesus. It's always the correct answer, eh? That's right. We tell people about Jesus. But do you think that's the only way we let our light shine? Hmm, not sure, eh? It's a hard one. Um, when, when Jesus talks about letting our light shine, what's interesting is he doesn't talk about us speaking. He talks about us doing. In, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us that we are to do good works and let our light shine before men. Now, in the passage we've been looking at over the last few weeks, we've been thinking about that. We thought about how old men have to live. We thought about how young men have to live, how old ladies have to live, how young ladies have to live. And and then we talked about how a minister had to live. And now we're thinking about another group of people called slaves. And God, through Paul, was getting Titus— gets a bit confusing— getting Titus to train the slaves— to let their light shine. And the way they were to do that was to be faithful and to be godly and to live for Christ wherever they go. And you know, the same's true for all of us, eh? We all have to let our light shines. It's not always easy, though. Oh, sometimes it's hard to be good, eh? Yeah, yeah, me too. Sometimes it's hard to be good. Sometimes it's hard to listen to teachers or parents. But that's one of the main ways that we can let people know that Jesus is lovely. We show people what Jesus is like by the way we live. So let's pray and we'll ask God to help us do that because it's pretty hard. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the children in our midst. We thank you for the way that you set your covenantal blessings upon them, that Lord, you never fail to care for them. And we pray that you would help all of us to let our light shine before men, that we'd let it shine till Jesus comes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're turning through to the little letter of Titus. Little letter of Titus. It's at the end of all the T's of Paul's letters. Thessalonians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Timothy, Titus. For those who are visitors, we've been working our way through the little book, and we're taking a meander through it. Very slow rate. And we find ourselves in chapter 2, and we're picking up at verse 9, dealing with verse 9 and 10. We'll read the whole chapter just so we have it in its context. Just as way of a reminder, it's sandwiched between verse 1 of chapter 2 and verse 11, and the point being that the grace of God has appeared, and Titus is to teach what accords with it, what is a fitting way of living, given that the grace of God has appeared. Tonight, we will think about the grace of God appearing and it will lead us into Christmas by the providence of God very well. But as for this morning, we're thinking about bond servants or slaves as we will be using. So this is Titus chapter 2, picking up at verse 1, and it is God's word for you today. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, showing yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Before we come to consider it, Let us pray. Father in heaven, we, we come to you because we need you, because we recognize that though you have given us your word, we will not benefit from it unless you work by your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that you have spoken throughout time in various ways, but you have spoken once for all in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your apostles who have written down the testimony of Christ, And have explained it for us that we might benefit, that we might grow in godliness and love. And this morning, we do pray, would you bless the preaching of your word? That we might be nourished and fed. That each and every one of us might leave here today, knowing that we have heard the voice of our Savior Jesus. Help us by faith to see him. So speak, O Lord as we come to you for your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine for a moment that you've gone to work. If you don't work, you can I'm sure you can imagine what working must be like. Uh, you imagine that you're going to work. It's Tuesday, and it's lunchtime, and you sit down in the lunch room in the smoker room, and you're gathered with a few different people there, and, and and they know you're a believer, and and they know some stuff vaguely about Christianity and the Bible, and and one of them says to you, the Bible, the Bible says slavery is good, eh? God, God was like a huge fan of slavery, right? And you know all of the terrible slave trade that took place. I mean, Christians, they, they all use the Bible to justify that, right? So how, how can you be happy being a Christian? I mean, me, I don't have a religion, but at least I don't like slavery like your God does. I wonder how you'd respond. Feel like maybe a deer stuck in the headlights. Maybe, you know, oh, smoke goes over. Look at that, got to get back to work. Uh, what would you do? What would you say? It's, it's a common thing that's said by people about Christianity. I mean, Paul here is instructing. I know it says bond servants, and I know that ESV loves to tell us that for the contextual rendering of the Greek word doulos, see preface, but slave is probably a far better translation. You can ask me why later if you want, but just think of a slave, okay? Okay a slave? What what do we do with this passage when Paul is teaching slaves? I mean, we don't have slaves, right? None of us are slaves. You know, there's two errors we can fall into when we come to a passage like this. One is, you could think of them like ditches on each side of the place where we're standing. On one side, there's the error of immediately rushing to the employer-employee relationship. You know, So we go, well, we don't have slaves, but I've got a boss. And so I need to make sure I do all these things to my boss. And we will see that there's truth in that. But we don't want to rush there too quickly. Because if we rush there really quickly, we kind of gut the meaning of its passage. But there's an error on the other side. There's a ditch on the other side of the road. And that is we can fall into spending all of our time trying to defend the apostle Paul and trying to defend God for what He's written. You know, and, and so we spend all of our time thinking about why it doesn't quite mean what you think it means. And coming up with convenient reasons of why this verse isn't, you know, it's quite quite the same anymore. And there's cultural this and there's all this. And, and so we spend all of our time defending the Bible rather than just listening to it. So what I want us to do today is to consider this as Paul intended it to be considered by the people of Crete, because Paul's writing to Crete, right? This letter was to be read out, as I've said before, in the churches, among the churches, so that the people themselves would benefit from it. It's not just a private letter to Titus. It's a public letter to Titus. And it's written for the good of God's people. So we're going to think about why this is a scandalous set of verses, an outrageous set of verses for the people at the time of creed. And then at the end, if there's time, Lord willing, we will see how it might apply in our situation. Now, I don't know if you noticed the title of the sermon today. It's called Godly Slaves. That is a scandalous title for a sermon. Not today, but back then, it was a scandalous title. It would have been. Why? The set of verses here is is so incredibly out of touch with reality for a first century reader. Let me show you. Let me show you the the gospel beauty that is in this set of verses. Now, now to help you understand a little bit what life was like at the time of Crete, let me point you to a nearer period of time. When when missionaries first came to New Zealand, they discovered a very tribal people, right? And and yet are quite warlike people. And these warlike people, the Māori people, would, would capture slaves. Now, when a slave was captured, they became effectively less than human. You considered a, a dog or a item that you own with more importance than a slave. That's, that's not surprising, right? That's very normal. That's the mindset you have to approach this text with. Paul is writing to a group of people whose society at large says have no worth, zero worth. They're borderline human. And we don't have to look far into uh, European history to see the same thing, right? You can go to the Americas, you can go to Europe, you can go to the UK and find the same thing. People as objects, no longer people, but just objects, slaves. Now, to write to a set of slaves and tell them to act in a godly way is preposterous because you don't encourage slaves to act in a certain way you just command them to do what you want and they do what they want what you want or they get it and it's in that that sort of context that sort of mindset that Paul frequently over and over and over again writes about how slaves must act and live. And so he writes to Titus here, and he says, Titus, yes, I want you to come alongside the older men, and I want you to come alongside the younger men, and I want you to come alongside the older and younger women, and I want you to be a faithful minister, and I want you to act with the slaves in this way. This is what I want you to teach them. John Chrysostom would talk about the slaves and he would say that they were viewed with such disdain and wickedness that no one would think they could ever live a good life. And Paul writes to Titus and says to them, let the slaves be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And this is the most scandalous part of all in everything. So that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, why is that a scandalous thing for Paul to suggest? Well, the characteristics he is asking Slaves to do a completely counter against everything a slave would want to do, firstly, right? I mean, it's one thing to obey your master because you don't have a choice, right? Like when the master has the rod, you don't have a great deal of choice as to whether you obey or not. But to tell slaves to willingly submit, to willingly yield themselves to their masters, is very countercultural. To tell them in everything, and in all their works and in all their efforts to be pleasing to their masters, not to argue back against them, not to skim the top. not That's what pilfering means, not skimming the top of profits. You know, 90% goes back to the boss's hand, but 10% goes in my pocket. Not that, but showing faithfulness, good faith. These are, these are things that you would never expect a slave to do. And he tells them to do it. But the scandalous part, the outrageous part, is the fact that Paul says, in doing so, they will adorn the gospel of God, the doctrine of God. Now, what's striking about that is Paul has not said that of any other category of person. Has he? I mean, have a look what he says of the others. The older men are to act this way. The older women are to act this way. The young women are to act this way so that God's word wouldn't be reviled. The young men are to act this way. And you yourself are to act this way so that the opponents would be put to shame. But it's only of the slaves, and this is striking, it's only of the slaves that he says you will adorn The doctrine of God. Now, what does it mean to adorn something? If you adorn something, it's when you take something beautiful, lovely, and and you put it on something else, right? Now, notice, Paul doesn't say the doctrine of God will adorn you, does he? Paul says slaves you will adorn the doctrine of God. Are are you picking up what's going on here? It's as though Paul is saying, you will make God's doctrine more beautiful. Now that's a scandalous suggestion because slaves aren't beautiful. Slaves are contemptible. Slaves are dishonorable. They're the filth of society. But only in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ do slaves find worth, honor, and glory. It's only in the gospel of Christ that slaves get taken from the dirt and become adornments of the doctrine of God by their godly conduct, by their godly living, the doctrine of God will shine more brightly. And do you know that's exactly what took place in the first century? The, the primary, uh, out of slaves and masters, the primary people that got slave, saved in the first century, you could guess who, were the slaves. Because they've got no hope, right? It's, what, it's the same thing we see today, right? Wherever the gospel goes, who tends to get affected by it? The poor, the vulnerable, the weak, the lowly. That's the gospel of Christ. And the rich and the powerful reject it. And so too in the first century. But what took place was these slaves would get saved and and they would embrace the gospel and they would live for the gospel and they would discover that in Christ Christ, they're not just trash, but in Christ, they're human. They're more human than their masters because they're being restored to the image of Christ and they have value and they have worth and they're loved. And the creator of the universe has come along while the entirety of society is saying, you don't matter, you don't count, no one cares, you do what I say. While all of society is screaming that, the creator in heaven sends Jesus Christ to be a slave, to be a servant, so that servants might be called children of God, so that slaves might hear the Father say, well done, good and faithful servant. You are precious to me. You are my precious sheep. And they discovered they had worth. And so they, they lived and they embraced the teachings of the scriptures. And they became like Joseph. You remember Joseph? I mean, what a miserable lot, right? In Potiphar's house. And yet he faithfully serves in what takes place. The master says, I'm going to entrust everything into your care. I don't need to think about anything while you're here because you're such a a godly, he wouldn't say this obviously, you're such a godly slave, I will entrust everything except my wife into your care. And then what happens when he's in the prison? Same thing. And what happens when he's before Pharaoh? Same thing. And what took place in the first century is this worked its way out. Masters began to look at their slaves and they would have a churlish slave who was miserable and would steal Pilfering what was his, and he would look at the Christian slave and he would say, That person has something I want. You see, because the Greeks, for the Greeks, if you want to understand doctrine, you don't look at what a person teaches, you look at the way they live. That's the way it works in Greek mind. You look at the outworking of what the individual philosopher is teaching, and there is your evidence. And so these these citizens would look at their slaves and they'd go, this guy's completely different. He's nothing like any other slave I've ever seen. He has honor. He works as though someone's watching him even though no one is. He's living for something in the next life that I know nothing about. What has taken place? And as First Peter would say, the slave would be ready to give an answer for the hope that he had within him, right? And he would share of what Christ had done, of how Christ had redeemed him, of how Christ had heaped worth and honor upon him. And so the master would be humbled by the slave. And then you would see these Just incredible pictures. Churches in the first and second century gathered together for worship like this. And slave and master. Can you picture it? I mean, just picture the filthiest image in your mind of a slave. And picture that slave standing next to a master on Sunday morning. Lifting up his voice with gusto, singing praise and honor, wisdom and might, glory and power be to our God forever and ever and ever. Amen. Lifting up their voices, sing we the King who is coming to reign, Singing, I mean, if only they had English back then, but could you imagine it singing, brother, let me be your servant. Let me be as Christ to you. And could you imagine the master looking at his slave and saying, let me serve you. Because that's what the gospel does, right? It's the great equalizer. The gospel doesn't care if you're rich or poor. The gospel doesn't care if you're beautiful or ugly. The gospel doesn't care if you're young or old because Christ came to save all. As we'll see tonight in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for just the rich people, for all people. Are you a part of the all people today? Then he came to save you. He came at Christmas. Remember the hymn? Love came down at Christmas. And it died upon a cross. So that slaves might be made children of God. You know, when when you sit in the workplace and someone says to you, "God, God loves slaves. You look them in the eye and you say, amen, he does. But not like you think. This world hates slaves. And it was only the gospel of Jesus Christ that brought freedom from slavery. Never forget that. It was teaching like this that William Wilberforce tapped into to see the horror of the slave trade and see it abolished. For 40-something years, he labored to see it gone. Why? Because he saw that even slaves were children of God, made in his image beautifully, and were given incredible worth And don't run to the employment, the employer employee relationship and, and lose sight of, of the beauty of this verse. It's a declaration of what Christ does even for slaves and even for you and me. He gives us, he gives us eternal riches, splendor and glory and yet brothers and sisters if if all of this is true if all of this is true for the lowest of the low like the lowest of the low how much more does it apply to us right I mean, if, if a slave can be told to do these things, how much easier is it for us to hear and do these things when we get to serve people willingly, when we get to work for people willingly, when we work around the home willingly, when we have an employer and, you know, we can just quit whenever we want. And if they're mean to us, we can just take them to court. How much more ought we to be faithful slaves in whatever situation of life we find ourselves, right? Whether you're a mother with children at home, whether you're a working woman or a working man, whether you're a child at school, or whether you're retired, all of us found ourselves in situations where we can live this out, can't we? Let's just note a few things, a few lessons we can learn for ourselves we we ought to willingly submit to those that God has placed upon us. Remember, God has placed them upon you. You may have chosen to work for your employer, but that doesn't change the fact that he is your boss, right? And, and God doesn't want us to to do what our bosses say because they tell us and then grumble about it, you know? We all know how it goes, right? There's always certain jobs that we hate doing, And our boss comes to us and says, I need you to go and do seven of them. And we go, sure thing. And then we turn the whole way down the hallway to go and do whatever it is we have to do. Paul says, no. Willingly serve. I was so encouraged when when I heard from an employer recently about someone from this church. I just happened to run into someone's employer. That happens, by the way. And they said to me, that person works hard all the time, whether I'm there or not. And just my heart rejoiced, right? I'm like, what a testimony. Just all the time, whether the boss is there or not, just submissively serving and doing what is required of them. But, but we're not just to be submissive and do what we're told. We're to do it in a certain way. And we get given these two uh, positives and negatives. So it's a positive, negative, negative, positive. And they come together as couplets, as we've seen throughout this whole list. Paul says, they are to be well pleasing, not argumentative. So, first couplet well pleasing, not argumentative. Now, what does it mean to be well pleasing? Well, it's to please someone well, right? Pretty obvious. Logan, thanks very much for this in-depth matter. It means to work for the good and pleasure of somebody else. In other words, not just doing what you're told, but striving for their benefit and not for your own. Not doing what you're doing because it's what's required of you, but seeking to do the absolute very best, not so that you would get a promotion, not so that you would be praised, but so that he or she would be happy and glad. Not argumentative, pretty straightforward, right? Don't backchat your boss. But it's far more than that. It's not just don't backchat. It's don't use your speech negatively. So I've, I've been an employer. I know how this goes. You know, you've just had to have one of those hard conversations with one of your employees, and then they go to lunch break. And you know exactly what's going to happen. They're going to go to lunch break, and they're going to go to your other employees, and they're all going to sit there and moan about you. It's incredible how it works. In all societies, and all workplaces, people love to complain about their boss, don't they? That's quite comical. Chloe is working for a jewellery store that I used to be a part of. She's got the same regional manager that I had when I was managing the jewellery store. And she was telling me that the work colleagues really find this guy hard to work with. And they were having a good old whinge session about him. And I was so confused. I said to Chloe, him? He's lovely. I don't know what you're talking about. He's a great guy. We got on like a house on fire. But isn't it so easy to use our mouths destructively? But what a witness, right? When you sit in a staff room or you sit in a lunch room, you sit with your work colleagues and they're all moaning and whinging about something to do with their work and you take no part in it. Let your light shine before men. And when they ask you why you're not joining in, you're ready to give an answer for the hope that you have within you. I don't speak badly about my boss because, you know, at the end of the day, God made him my boss. And so I willingly and happily serve him. But notice the other couplet, he says they are to not pilfer, but show all good faith. Pilfering, it's a cool word, pilfering. It's not really just stealing. It's more like, as I said, taking the skimming the top, skimming the cream off the top, the best part. It's very, very easy to do, Right. Especially nowadays, if you're involved in finances, how often do we hear of people being fired and imprisoned for embezzling funds? Yeah, and you might think to yourself, well, I never embezzle any money. But you know, it's the subtlest of ways that this can creep into our hearts. Did I finish at six or 6.15? If you're recording mileage, It was 6.7, and so you always round it up. It's subtle, right? But you're pilfering because it's not yours. You ought to act in such a way that you show good faith in everything so that, like Jacob, after serving for 21 years for Laban, you can say, I have served you for 21 years and nothing has gone missing that is yours. And anything that went bad, I took it my own personal expense, Laban. You miss nothing. You look, you count. You look at what's around you. You can trust me in everything. And Laban couldn't deny him, right? And you ought to be able to say that at the end of a career. I didn't even steal a staple. When we ran out of tape, I used my home tape. Whatever it is you work in. And why should you do this? So that you will beautify the doctrine of God. Now, don't understand that to mean that the doctrine of God's ugly and you have to make it pretty because it's kind of ugly, Yeah. You know? No, no, the, the point is that You will carry the doctrine of God into your workplace in such a way that the people around you will say, I don't know what you have, but I want it. Whatever it is that's in your heart and in your work ethic, I want it. It's beautiful. Because if we don't live this way, what happens? They go, Wait, you're a Christian? So I've, I've been there, brothers and sisters. When I first came back to the Lord, I was a, just a bad human being. We'll just put it that way. And I continued to be so. And I would go to work and people would find out I'm a Christian and they would say, wait, what, you? I saw you at a party the other week. And I'm like, oh, yes. <clears throat> what did I do? I uglified the doctrine of God, right? Let us not uglify the doctrine of God, but rather let us live with a conscious awareness of one drastically important truth, and that is that Jesus Christ is not just Lord on Sunday, He's not just Lord in church, but Jesus Christ is Lord and King of every single inch of the universe. He is the Lord and King of your workplace. Your boss may not know it, but he is. He is your highest employer, for lack of a better word. When you submit to your master, you do so because you are submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you are living to be pleasing to your master, you are doing it because you're living to please Jesus Christ. The textbooks in your office are Jesus Christ's textbooks. Fill them out like you would for Jesus. When you deliver newsletters on behalf of an employer, put them in the mailbox like they were the word of God because they're Christ's. Everything you do, you do for him and you must live that way because it's the truth. Live for the Lord. So that his splendor would shine as radiant as the sun. Brothers and sisters, can I just tell you really quickly evangelism's really easy. I know you don't believe me when I say that, but evangelism's actually really, really easy. You don't even have to ask anyone any questions or know the way of the master, you don't have to know the three laws or the seven laws or the 14 rules or anything else. You don't have to have anything. All you have to do is this. If you live under the lordship of Christ in your workplace, I guarantee you that eventually someone will notice. Eventually, you will stick out like a sore thumb. You may not like that, but you will. And someone will notice, and they will come to you, and they will say, Where does your hope come from? And you can say to them, my hope is in the name of the Lord, my God, the maker of heaven and earth. My hope is found in nothing else but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I dare not trust in in any frame. But I just hold on to his name. And I gather with a bunch of people that do that on a Sunday. You should come along sometime. It's not rocket science, though. It's just living for Jesus. And may God grant us to do so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us a wonderful, merciful saviour who has redeemed us out of this world, that we might live as servants of the King. And we pray that you would help us to lay down everything we have at the throne of God and live for him with all of our might. We confess before you, Lord, that that many of us, many of us have been unsubmissive. Many of us have pilfered. Many of us have been argumentative. Many of us have not lived with good faith. Many of us have not been well-pleasing. and We pray that you would forgive us. And we ask that you would cleanse our conscience, that you would raise us to our feet, that we might live and walk for you. Lord, we ask that you would help us not not to buy the lie of this world that you hate slaves but that we would believe with all of our heart that you gave the Lord Jesus Christ to be a slave, that slaves might be children of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.